Jeremy, your mic stand is getting bonked left and right there. <laughs> this dog is riled up. Whose fault is that? Yeah, Peter. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was trying to get... He's finally calming down. <laughs> I was trying to get funny content. Uh, well. The things we do for content, you know? <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, former stunt double at Peter's Public Access Hare Krishna TV Evangelist Show and current overnight security guard at Jeremy's Foster Home for Abandoned Ventriloquist Dummies. (laughs) Just rolling with the absurd here. You yeah, guys remember that, those? Those were your those were your jobs early on in the podcast. Remember when you didn't make up your own intros and I just threw them at you and made you react to them without ever hearing them before every episode? You guys remember that? I do. I do. Every so often I've gone back and, and heard one of those first season episodes that we did that way and it's weird now to me. It's a cool throwback though. We've come so far. Full circle. Well, I'm co-host jeremy and i gotta say guys i am delighted to be here for this episode i think it's me too i'm glad that we're both delighted it's finally time we give jake isles band their flowers <laughs> oh, have you no one listen- talks about him anymore you know <laughs> you've been listening to jake isles band freeze frame jeremy yeah uh oh mm, i hate to be the one to break the news to you but that's not the freeze frame we're talking about today oh no it just so happens we're talking about godly and cream oh no (laughs) freeze frame Uh, so you're still excited though right no (laughs) well i am co-host peter cook and i spend the night With radio, I'd buy that. Cheap music crackles me to sleep. Is that a Ted CC thing? No, it's one of the songs on this album. Yeah. (laughs) It's the last song, so you were probably very checked out by then, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At least two out of three hosts of this episode listened to this album all the way through. I was in a room while it played, okay? (laughs) It technically went through your ears. Yeah, that's sacrifice enough fair well thank you for your service thank you for your sacrifice all right sean well we're doing this it godly and cream it is freeze frame was this, this is 1979 right that is correct this is a hotly anticipated record for us it's going back all the way to i believe our 10th episode when we featured 10 cc's the original soundtrack yeah the record that nearly broke the podcast yeah, that was Jeremy <laughs> viscerally hated it. We got into a real altercation on mic during the recording of it. And I'm shocked we ever made another episode after that one, to be quite honest. <laughs> and we've never let 
Jeremy, forget. Yeah. Yeah, we've been we've been trying to keep him in his place ever since then by threatening to do a Godly and Cream record someday, and the time has finally come. Our loyal fans have been wondering ever since the 10th episode, will Jeremy ever come around to the great 10cc and their even better offshoot, Godly and Cream? Will his heart soften? Will he learn anything from years of being exposed to new music and new genres and expanding his taste? Has he come around? The fans need to know. No. (laughs) I thought maybe you were going to save it till the end and keep people guessing, but you didn't like this record? No. Well, how do you feel about talking about it for the next like 45-ish minutes anyways? Fine. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Perfect. Well, where are we starting, Sean? Should we kick off with a song then? Let's go ahead and hear the song that I almost left off because I knew that it would probably be the hardest song for Jeremy to enjoy on the entire record. And also, uh, I guess a bit of a trigger warning. There are a few slurs in this song. So if you're not feeling that, go ahead and skip forward. But a, a little bit of history. This song is called An Englishman in New York. And the idea of it is it's kind of a surrealist word picture of the first time that Godly and Cream visited New York City in the early days of 10CC. And how it was just a very overwhelming experience. It was chaotic and messy, but kind of beautiful. And the song is an attempt to convey that in a very signature quirky type manner. So the offensive content in here is not necessarily the opinion or views of Godly and Cream, but more part of their impression of visiting New York in the late sixties, early seventies. All right. So let's get into it. Side a track one. Yeah. See if you win me over with these slurs. Stranger theme. I came, I saw, what kind of release is this? New York, you 
I would just like to read some lyrics from this album, mm-hmm. if that's okay with you guys. That sounds great. Yeah. Are these okay. your favorite lyrics from the album? These are some lyrics from this album. Okay. You may have noticed, the hissing of omelets, the breaking of legs, don't shoot till you see the whites of their eggs. Beautiful. Sexual athlete applies for audition Willing to make it in any position. Yeah. It's thought-provoking. What? I said it's thought-provoking. They boggle at menus in old English verse, owed to a burger by Keats at his worst. Mm-hmm. And finally, I present to you, a men's room attendant is flapping his jowls. Shh, Howard Johnson is moving his bowels. <laughs> You know what? Those weren't from the whole album. That was just from this song. <laughs> the first song on the album. And I didn't even include the slurs. There's a lot here. And uh, is there like a statement you're trying to make with uh, bad lyrics? lyrics? They're bad. Bad lyrics. So you think the lyrics are objectively bad? Like you're not even saying it's yes. not for you? These are, wow. A bold take bad. from Jeremy Ruggles. But didn't the uh, zany, old-timey musical arrangement win you over? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's like we don't know you at all, Jeremy. Yeah. I have to say, I hadn't listened to this in a long time. This was the Godly and Cream record that Sean and I found in the bins at Corner Record Shop nearly 10 years ago at this point, at least nine years ago when we were starting to try to figure out what all these albums were that weren't priced very high and no one seemed very interested in, we were trying to hype them up a little bit, or at least know about them, learn about them, sort of the genesis of this podcast, Uh, not sort of fully the genesis of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of the solution of what do you do when you work at a record store that no one shops at that's tucked in the corner of a shopping mall on the edge of town and no one comes in to sell you records? Yeah. You just figure out what records you have that are actually good and then try and sell those to people. And then eventually you start a podcast. Eventually you do. Yep. That's the the end result of any project along those lines. But yeah, this one, hearing it again... It's like, wow, this reminds me of those moments of discovery of just not expecting to hear something like that when we drop the needle on a record, especially I think this one was maybe priced at five or seven dollars. I have no idea, but it definitely wasn't a highly valued record by any means. And, you know, as we got we were usually checking out maybe a couple minutes of each track and moving the needle to the next track and. By the time I got to the third or fourth track, I just thought, what am I listening to? Who is this? And then did a little research to find out it was two of the guys from 10CC, who I was at least a little familiar with at that point. Yeah, and one of the things that really jumped out to me with this record when I first heard it in that context was 
it's shockingly weird for a cheap dollar bin heat record. You know, there's obviously plenty of good records to be found in the dollar bin, but not many records that are in like full on experimental territory. Yeah, that, this was the first one, or at least one of the first ones we found that went this weird. Mm-hmm. I wonder why that is. We had to get to the, we got to the G section. <laughs> I mean, that's A through G, you know, we were, we were going alphabetically. So no, I mean, why do you think most weird records hold value and this one just doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeremy, I have to say, I, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat this at all. I, I don't think you're alone in looking at the all music reviews and ratings for the godly and cream discography this is one of the higher rated ones at two and a half stars <laughs> yeah yeah i saw that the other day all music hates this band <laughs> yeah th this was like they gave this a few backhanded compliments and that was about as good as they could do in the review of it yeah exploring the depths of the internet for people's opinions about this band and this record is fascinating because it's everything from people just outright hating on it you know obviously the more ignorant of the reviewers and uh people saying like oh well it could have been better like not as good as 10 cc and then you start to get into the territory of the true heads who are saying like they have a favorite godly and cream record and then other ones aren't quite as good and then finally the galaxy brains who recognize that all godly and cream material is great and they are underappreciated geniuses so we we have some real uh polar opposite diversity of perspectives yes yes yeah. exactly <laughs> and i think that's fine it is fine yeah i'm looking forward to talking about this album though and, and seeing what you learned about it sean and just learning more about godly and cream well first off there's not a lot of extra musicians on this record the vast majority of the singing the instrumentation and the production is all in-house by Mr. Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream. That first song had one feature from a guy named Rico Rodriguez playing trumpet and tuba. Rico was a Cuban-born Jamaican ska and reggae horn player trained by legendary ska trombonist Don Drummond and later relocated to the UK where he played with the specials Georgie Fame, Jules Holland, and many others. So he is playing trombone on the specials. Message to you, Rudy. Oh, wow. It's a big one. Yeah. Fun little connection there. So one thing that's important about this song is this is the first music video that Godly and Cream filmed to go along with one of their songs. And as we mentioned in the 10CC episode and fans of this group know, they are quite famous as music video producers almost as much as they are as musicians. And the thing I was really struck by with this record and also kind of going back through a lot of their catalog and some of the 10 CC records is their lyrics are very visual. It's almost like most of the time they're trying to paint a picture with the words instead of necessarily having a storyline or plot. It's almost like surrealist poetry with experimental music put to it at times and early on they were working on student films in college together that's actually how kevin and lowell met so the visual element of their music was always extremely important to them and 
having, you know, mostly only done audio, you know, recording albums through the sixties and seventies, it makes sense that there was still like that visual element to it, even before they got into the, the music video filming. I actually have a, a quick little list of some of the music videos that they directed. Some pretty big ones were done by Godly and Cream through the 80s. Every Breath You Take by The Police. Everybody Have Fun Tonight by Wang Chung. Girls on Film by Duran Duran. Heat of the Moment by Asia. You guys ever heard that song? Yeah, it was in 40-Year-Old Virgin. <laughs> of course I know it. You can't help yourself. <laughs> It's adorable. They did the video for Hip to be Square by Mr. Huford Lewis in the news. Why'd you say it that way? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I thought it'd be funny. I thought there'd be a reaction to some of this from my co-hosts. You're listening to too much godly and cream. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting too quirky. They also did Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Rocket by Herbie Hancock, and When We Was Fab by George Harrison, along with many other videos. Did they do Cry by Godly and Cream? They did do Cry by Godly and Cream. How did you guess? I, I had a sneaking suspicion. Yeah. <laughs> Weren't they kind of considered to be like pioneers in music video, just as far as sort of taking things to a different level? Or were, were they? Yeah, they were some of the first people to make music videos that weren't just glorified live performances. You know, there was earlier music videos than them, but they were some of the first guys to really get conceptual with it and build kind of elaborate set pieces. The rocket video by Herbie Hancock is kind of a famous one from them where they made all of these different robots and just like filmed these machines and robots that they had built to go along with the music. It's pretty great. Very inventive. Yeah, I think that's important context. Yeah. So as we said, Kevin and Lowell met in art school together. They bonded from a kind of a shared feeling of just being outsiders. The quote was that they felt like no one else thought the same way that they did. So when they found each other, they stuck together as close collaborators for many years. They came up as studio musicians, like we talked about in the 10CC episode, so I won't go into as much detail. They were the uncredited backing band on a lot of bubblegum pop records. And then they had a surprise hit under a side project called Hot Legs, which then formed into 10CC. They put out four records from 1973 to 1976, self-titled sheet music, the original soundtrack, and How Dare You. They began working on the fifth 10CC record and then quit the band around late 76, early 1977 to work on the first Godly and Cream album, Consequences, which is a triple-disc rock opera narrated by the comedian Peter Cook and intended as a showcase for the new effects, not an effects pedal, it's, it's a weird vintage guitar effect called the Gizmotron that we'll talk about more later. Not to be confused with this Peter Cook. <laughs> not to be confused with that peter cook the original comedian <laughs> yeah people would know him best at least in the states as the priest mowage in the princess bride uh, yes. yes he was a comedy partner of dudley moore i was very confused at when i was 14 years old and saw peter cook dies 
in the newspaper. <laughs> no, I didn't, guys. I'm right here. January 1995. I remember that day well. Ex- existential wow. crisis. <laughs> but but that's when your ghost life started. True. It's like a Paul McCartney type thing. I was thinking uh, like Sixth Sense, but I was trying to stay related to this episode in some way that we will find out about later on. I was trying to escape from this episode. <laughs> Fair. We're all coming at it from different angles. All right, let's 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 get into another song, though. This next one is definitely my favorite track on the album and the one that I remember the most from sampling this record initially. When I first heard this, I was just like, wow, I didn't know something this weird and this good could be so cheap. Yeah. The song is called I Pity inanimate objects side a track three yeah this was the moment that you and i raised our eyebrows a little bit sean (laughs) yeah much different from Radiohead fitter happier oh give me a break off of okay computer pretty much you know same thing I mean it's probably a fact that Radiohead wouldn't exist without that song so (laughs) big ups to Godly and Cream blazing the trail yeah I mean I I have to wonder how in, in 1979 if you just think about the musical 
context, the, the commercial musical context that an album like this is being released into. Like what, what label is this album on, Sean? Polydor. So a major label. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, I can imagine people could not make heads or tails of some of this stuff <laughs> there. You know, this is right in the prime time for disco. As far as other experimental music that was going on on like a wide scale, you know, obviously you had musicians like Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart still releasing material at that point. But this is way more damaged than anything those guys were doing at that point. Yeah, for sure. And they were definitely huge Zappa fans. You can really tell the influence throughout their career, but they were... They were on a different wavelength at times. And part of their thing is they were always really interested in new technology and using new things to create weird sounds that no one else had. So for that song, the the vocals, which are particularly strange and unsettling, it was basically an early use of auto-tune. They used a machine called a harmonizer and... Kevin Godley was singing the whole song in a monotone and then Lil Cream is playing the harmonizer to change the pitch of his vocals. You know, most use of the harmonizer then was just to make slight alterations to people's voices so that they fit better on the record. And these guys are, you know, at least 20 years ahead of their time with being like, no, this thing that's just supposed to be like a simple tool for the producer we're gonna figure out how to make shit really weird with this and then decades later you have the the craze of people using auto-tune in a non-traditional way these guys are doing it not necessarily first maybe that was bruce hack but (laughs) a very early version of this kind of experimentation oh yeah 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 bruce hack is a good comparison i don't think he, aside from maybe appearing on Mr. Rogers, I don't know how much uh, commercial exposure he ever had, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a miracle that Godly and Cream got so much exposure. They got so big with 10cc that they were just kind of given, you know, these blank checks, if you will, to create these weird records. And I think they also just kind of got lucky of it being the time when labels would experiment with stuff like that and give artists the chance to kind of build into a hit instead of just dropping them after the first failed single it would be hard to see a band like this getting this big after this time period it just doesn't really work like that in the music industry anymore you know why do you have a guess you have some insight on this do you have something insightful to say or just a slight (laughs) (laughs) it's because whoever brought this on got fired (laughs) it's possible it's it's possible i mentioned their invention the gizmotron before this that song is also a good example of the use of the gizmotron which i will explain what that is real quick it's very similar to the ebo more people are familiar with that it attaches to the bridge of the guitar so you have to kind of mount it on and then it is a battery powered machine with a little wheel above each string on the instrument that you mount it on. And then it has a button above the wheel and you push it down and the wheel sustains the string 
So it kind of turns guitars and basses into something that can replicate a string section, which was the initial reason that they invented it. They wanted to figure out how to get string-like sounding things on their record without paying a string section to come into the studio because they didn't have the budget for it. So they got obsessed with experimenting with this new invention of theirs, and they took out a patent on it. They were convinced that the Gizmotron was going to just take over the music industry and be their legacy. So, like we said, they were their first album is this huge, ridiculous three-disc concept called Consequences, and everything about it flopped. The Gizmotron didn't take off. They weren't able to get the right materials to build it in mass and make it a sustainable product. The album Consequences not so much flopped or was hated as much as it was just instantly forgotten. <laughs> There's reports that like even auditioning the record to the label executives, people were falling asleep and like couldn't even <laughs> get through it <laughs> for the people who were like paying for this record to be made. Man, I yeah, I would love to have that to have been like filmed. That would be highly entertaining seeing some label executives trying to just process godly and cream. Yeah. <laughs> Three discs worth. Yeah, and that had to have been so tough for them to go through because, like I said, they thought the Gizmotron was going to be their legacy. They thought Consequences was going to be this masterpiece of an album that just blew people's minds. And they worked on it for something like 16 months, working full days, like 14 plus hours a day working on this record together, the two of them in the studio. And I think... Towards the end of the work, they were starting to have some thoughts of like, maybe this is too weird for people. Maybe this is going to flop. And then when everything fell apart, like it was, it was rough times for them. Shit got kind of dark for those two guys. Are they the only band in history whose debut is a triple album? Half Japanese, their, their first album, Half Gentleman, Half Beast is also triple, I think. Yeah. And I don't think that one came out on Polydor. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although the uh, consequences was actually on Mercury. This is the first record on Polydor after leaving Mercury Records. Half Gentleman, not Beasts. That's the yeah. Name. The thing that kind of is shocking to me is it's it's interesting that they didn't try and make a more commercial record around this time. Like we said, they put so much effort into these highly experimental conceptual projects and it all fell apart it feels like most bands would then try and course correct and be like well i guess we should play something that people want so we don't lose our jobs and all of that but they just remained true to their weird visions and just were completely uncompromising in the art that they made regardless of whether jeremy ruggles was going to like it decades later or not bless them for that yeah the other thing that was causing them a lot of stress around this time is kind of looking back on leaving 10CC, this hugely successful group that had these massive hits, was making them a lot of money. And the reason they split was they had started working on the Consequences album and the rest of the band kind of gave them the ultimatum of there's no side projects. If you want to be in this band, you can't do other stuff. And they made the call, we're going to do Consequences instead of remaining in one of the most successful bands of the day. 
And I'm sure there had to have been some regrets in that decision afterwards. There were consequences. There were consequences. Just one of the many consequences was that Lowell Cream and Eric Stewart, one of the other 10CC members, were actually married to two sisters from the same family and would have to run into each other at family reunions. Well, awkward. Very awkward. <laughs> so the the follow-up record to Consequences was a record called L that many people consider to be the best Godly and Cream record. And one of the things that they changed about it was that they decided after Consequences that they didn't want to make a conceptual piece and they wanted to write something that was more personal. So it's a very dark, challenging album with a lot of just them working through all of the shit that they were going through that we just talked about. So this album that we are featuring here today, Freeze Frame, I feel like is a little bit of both. It's them working through some personal stuff, but also just accepting where they're at and getting back into some experimentation. Like we said with the, the vocal experimenting on I Pity Inanimate Objects. These are just like fun ideas that they ran with and put on a major label record, which I just applaud them for doing that kind of work. As I said before, I hadn't listened to this in a long time and it really seems like they're just allowing themselves to experiment. They're really not concerned with the commercial success of it. Yeah, that's very true. And this album, it's a vibe for sure. It's a weird vibe. It's uh has some interesting emotional reactions when you play the whole thing all the way through. And I think it keeps getting better the more you listen to it. This is probably my favorite Godly and Cream related record, even though I'm a big fan of much of their output. Yeah, you proudly own a copy of Consequences, don't you? Wasn't that a big score for you? I, sh I sure do. Yeah, I have just about everything that Godly and Cream did, and including the, the 10cc records and the solo material. Big fan. So let's get into another track now. We are going to play one that is another interesting concept and experiment that they went with. I'll tell you how they came around to making this track. It is called Brasilia, parentheses, Wish You Were Here. And it features contributions from guitarist Phil Manzanera. Roxy Music? Roxy Music. Nice. And then... Continued as a close collaborator with Brian Eno outside of that. And there was also some talk of them, of him and Godly and Cream starting an actual full-time band, but that never really materialized. But Phil's on a number of tracks on this record working with them. One of the only extra members aside from the main two guys. So this is side side B track two. <laughs> White heat, gray stone, 
in reading about this record, there's not many people who seem to like that track, but that one really stands out to me, partly because there's an interesting concept behind it and partly because, man, just the feeling that I get when listening to it is just so interesting. It's very surreal. You know, they keep repeating some of the same lines, so it, it kind of start to disassociate a little bit while listening to it maybe and it's like six minutes long i think yeah yeah it's just puts you in a weird zone and i love it it's just like an interesting piece of imagery so the concept behind recording that one is they wrote the backing rhythm the kind of smoke on the water inspired riff and then each member of the group godly and cream plus phil manzanera went into the studio separately and just recorded whatever they wanted to complement the rhythm track. And then without listening to each other's tracks, they just all went and did that and then put it all together, moved things around slightly here and there if they overlapped in ways that didn't seem to work. And then that was the song. And, you know, people criticize it for being repetitive. People are like, oh, it doesn't go anywhere. They're at their best when they have more of a verse chorus pop structure. But... I think it's them just really <laughs> trying out different vibes. Like what if we completely abandon the pop structure and just try and get people to kind of trip out a little bit when they're listening to it. It it actually sounds like something that could have been on half Japanese, half gentlemen, not beasts. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, that came out on a much smaller label and a much smaller edition the following year after this, uh, some of those trippier tracks on that album and here it is on a major label done in a major studio <laughs> maybe not a lot of major press behind it but uh it did come out on a major label <laughs> the other reason i like that song and i pity inanimate objects is i feel like they fit the album cover really well and i do love the album cover to this record it's strange and a little unsettling just like the music so I want to take just a second to highlight this album cover and the people that made it. It was designed by a group called Hypnosis, spelled H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. Are either of you familiar with that group? Oh, yeah. They're, they did a lot of major album covers for big artists, ones that people know. True. It was made up of three people, Storm Thorgerson, Aubrey Powell and later Peter Christofferson from the band Throbbing Gristle. <laughs> this album Freeze Frame would have been one of the earliest designs that Peter Christofferson worked on. He kind of joined the crew later on. But a short list of a few records people might have heard of that they designed Pretty Things Parachute, T-Rex Electric Warrior, Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon, Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy, 10CC The Original Soundtrack, synergy chords you guys remember that record yeah very early feature on the podcast and most notably they are the people responsible for self-titled record by toe fat <laughs> oh god that is oh that album cover makes me so uncomfortable they were also responsible for ween the mollusk in 1997 <laughs> they got their fingers everywhere yeah, and their toes, and their toe fat. <laughs> yeah, for those not familiar with the Toe Fat album, you're just going to have to look it up now. I'm sorry. Uh, Apologies in advance. <laughs> it's, it'll get you on some kind of list. <laughs> yeah, for, I remember an anecdote about one of the members of Hypnosis 
<laughs> trying to do a, a pun with what they thought was a funny pun with a Led Zeppelin album cover by having a tennis racket on it, meaning that the music was a racket and it almost got them dropped. <laughs> Led Zeppelin almost dropped them as a client. Jimmy Page was not happy. <laughs> that would have been a bad client to lose, I imagine. There might have been some money there. Yeah, just a little bit. So Godly and Cream continued on together after this record. They worked together up until 1988 when they officially split as collaborative partners after decades of working together basically every day. Uh, They are both still out there. They're both continuing to make visual and audio art of many various kinds today. Lowell Cream, right after splitting, joined a group called The Art of Noise, which if you're familiar with them, that makes a whole lot of sense. Definitely a band that was very influenced by 10CC, Godly and Cream. Kevin continued directing music videos very frequently. And then in 2013, he launched an app called Whole World Band, which had the intent of being kind of a collaborative platform for people to make music and videos together from all over the world. The app has since been rebranded to Udio and they are still trying to make it take off. Also a new company has reworked the Gizmotron and is now selling the Gizmotron 2.0, a new and improved, more sleek variety that you can find at gizmotron.com. Kevin and Lull had allowed the patent to expire on the original Gizmotron and had basically given up and like everyone's forgotten about all this work we did this part of our lives and whatever. And we're pleasantly surprised when people kind of relaunched it. It's a really interesting instrument and gives you a whole lot of options that you can't really get with an Ebo or similar products. Did they pay us for that? <laughs> Did we get some advertising money? <laughs> Endorsement? Uh, no, they didn't. No. No, I think that was just an interesting note. Did it sound too much like an endorsement? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let it pass since Godly and Cream aren't getting the money. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm just practicing for when we actually start getting real sponsors someday. Cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you did great, Sean. Thank you. I'm ready to go buy one right now. All right, go and get it. So I have some kind of final thoughts before we talk about recommended albums and all that. I'm of the opinion, and I'm sure they're not all three of us would agree with this, that Godly and Cream really deserve much more credit than they typically get. Like I said, they were consistently pushing boundaries of what kind of sounds could be on a major label commercial record. And they continued to make these albums without any thought of commercial viability or success. It was simply the music that they wanted to make, which for me, I think is why I like them. We talked about this before. I don't usually enjoy stuff that's overly quirky or tongue in cheek, but there's just something about the way Godly and Cream do it. They're not making goofy music just to like make a stupid joke. It's like they're just genuinely very weird people who are making art that the only way they know how is the impression that I get. So for me, the quirkiness just seems genuine and doesn't bother me as much. That's my defense of it. Duly noted. (laughs) I think that their influence on new wave art rock and even prog rock after them cannot be overstated. They didn't have as much of a like strong audience following after leaving 10 CC, 
but I get the impression that other musicians were definitely still paying attention to them as evidenced by their collaboration with Phil Manzanera on this record and an even more notable collaborator on this last track that we're going to hear in a little bit, Sir Paul McCartney. Yeah. Which, you know, Paul gets the reputation as being the schmaltzy corny beetle and John Lennon, the cool avant-garde beetle, but it was actually Paul who was typically more seeking out and having his ear to whatever newest weird sounds were out there. I know he sat in on an AMM music session, which is about as experimental as you get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was, yeah, really intrigued and tuned into Godly and Cream. And, you know, it was not even a full year later after working on this one song with him that he released his weirdest solo record, McCartney 2, came out in 1980. I mean, you can't tell me that he wasn't influenced by the work of Godly and Cream while recording songs like Temporary Secretary or Dark Room. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Which, yeah. if you're not familiar with that album or those tracks, give it a listen and you'll be quite surprised. The other thing is if, like, think about some of the new wave bands that we've covered and what was happening, especially right after this album in 79. A lot of that stuff got really weird, and there was a whole group of bands that could make pretty damaged sounding stuff and still get hits out of it. Think about groups like Split Ends, Men at Work, Level 42, The Art of Noise, Kid Creole and the Coconuts, Talk Talk, The Human League, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. All these groups that had quirky elements, weird stuff, experimented in the studio, mixing pop hooks with some wild sounds. Godly and Cream was at the front of all of that, I say. Yeah, they had some impact on the 80s if you know if if you someone did try to argue against their musical influence then they still have their music video influence exactly and they did a lot of videos for some of those new wave bands you know they did the multiple duran duran videos etc cetera, etc cetera. so like the bands knew about these guys they were paying attention to what they were doing all right sean well i i think you've made a pretty good argument but I am curious what you put together for recommended similar albums. Well, let me tell you about them. First up, The Art of Noise, who we mentioned. Lowell Cream joined the group in 88 after splitting. Highly recommend their album, Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise, from 1984. Either of you guys listen to that group at all? I, I was intrigued because of their name and... I don't think I made it through a whole album before I was like, nope, not for me, but now it all makes sense. (laughs) It does all make sense now. I remember having that same experience as like a 19 year old digging around the record stores. Like, Oh, I love noise. The art of noise. That must be good. And I put it on like, this isn't noise. Fuck this. And then later on realized that I actually do really enjoy that band. Very sample based, very experimental, interesting group. Yeah. And we talked about them a bit on our ABC episode because of the producer of that was Trevor Horn who went on to the art of noise and there were some connections. Yeah. ABC, another band that was probably influenced by these guys, you know, that new romantics kind of grandiose art school kid music all comes back to Godly and cream. Second recommendation, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. 
one of my favorite 80s bands. Uh, highly recommend their album Architecture and Morality from 1981. And then my final recommendation, Marion Faithful, Broken English, also mm. from 1979, one that I've recommended before and is an amazing record. And we'll definitely be doing an episode on that one at some point. Yeah, that's a good one. I love that song, that title track. Yeah, for sure. Do you guys want to hear some anonymous user reviews? Oh, wow. This oh, okay. I'm in. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you woke me back up. Here we go. I scoured the internet to see what the people think about this record. I found some reviews. The reviewers will remain anonymous and I will do my best to accurately read the original intention of these reviews and comments. First one, this album makes me want to go out into the peer pressure, individualistic, closed-minded world that society is take my clothes off and hop around in a fountain, roaring and laughing like a madman all the way to my future prison cell. <laughs> that's, that's who this album was for. Yeah. At the time yeah. That it was. Target audience right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Second review. This is an album that you really like. Then you don't hear it for a long time. Then when you hear it again, you think, wow, what a great album. That's the entire review. That's the entire review. Next review. I played this record, Freeze Frame, to my friends when it was released, and they all shouted to me to turn it off. I loved it and still does. <laughs> That's the perfect end of that review. Yeah. Final review. And this one actually has the star rating. And this review is very disappointing. Too way out wacky for me. One star. Yeah. So it's not just Jeremy out there. The people, <laughs> some people agree with him. I wonder what that person's expectation going in was. <laughs> what were yeah. they hoping for? <laughs> they, they wanted to hear another version of Dreadlock Holiday. That's what they wanted. Yeah. Oh, I love 10CC. <laughs> well, that's, that's just about all my notes, unless you had something you're about to say there, Peter. Well, I, I just thought about the fact that, uh, you know, when we selected this, you know, if there was any chance of trying to, which I don't know why that's important, but if there was any chance of trying to win Jeremy over, convert him to liking anything by Godly and Cream, this was a maybe one of the worst records we could have picked. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> don't lie, you wanted me to lean into the villain role. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, at this point, you've we've established. This character, we there's no point in changing it. Yeah, yeah. In uh, reality, it's just not for me. Yeah. If I'm being honest, I knew there was no saving Jeremy, so I just picked the album that I wanted to hear. Ooh, in the spirit. In the spirit of Godly and Cream, you know, I don't give a yeah. damn about my audience. This is just what I like. So I'm like the record label execs then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the villainous role. Yeah. <laughs> I'll play the heel. I'm okay with that. I, I remember we got you to listen to their biggest hit, Cry, and you said that you overall liked it, but then the end just totally, you basically noped out at the very end when it does the whole, like, cry crescendo. Yeah. <laughs> I, I snuck it in on a road trip. We were passing the aux cord around and playing songs, and I put that one on, and Jeremy's initial initial genuine reaction was this is good and then 
when I told him it was godly and cream, he pretended to hate it after that. So I have my suspicions. I think he's actually a fan, but just doesn't want to admit it to people because he's embarrassed. Well, it's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) An embarrassment of riches. You know, we've got so many UK fans and this band is loved out there so much. The UK people that I talk to, this this band, 10CC and Godly and Cream, they look up to them. They're innovators, influencers, incredible band. So for me and all the true fans out there, we finally brought it back. We'll check in with Jeremy in a few years. We'll do Snack Attack, see if he's finally come around. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But for now... We're going to go out on our closing track. This is a song called Get Well Soon. This is the one that features Paul McCartney. Not really sure where Paul McCartney is on this track. There's like a few backing vocal sections that could be him, but maybe not. Yeah, I wasn't clear on that either. I was trying to figure that out shortly before we went to record. Like if we could place where he is and he, he he's credited though. He's in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, supposedly Linda McCartney is on there uncredited as well, but I, I don't know, but I just want to say that it's a pretty bold move to have such a high profile guest on your record and then bury whatever he even did in the mix. Like they didn't even bother to be like, Hey, here's the Paul McCartney verse. Can we sell a few more thousand copies because of it? They're just like, Nope, we will only record what we think services this song, regardless of what fucking band you used to be in. You know, it's funny. I've I've heard that uh, when Pink Floyd were recording Dark Side of the Moon, and the, you know, there's a lot of talking and snippets on that record. And those they had a series of questions that they would interview people and have them respond to those questions. And that I think Paul and Linda McCartney were some of the subjects, but they didn't use any of them because all of their answers were too normal. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, Paul's in here somewhere, though, in in this final track, Get Well Soon. That might be him singing Get Well Soon, but who knows. All right, Sean, well, I enjoyed this. Thanks for bringing this album back into my life. It had been a long time. I I have a copy of Snack Attack, but I I don't have this one. I haven't picked it up. This was a revelatory moment in our digging at the record store, and it's fun to hear it again, so... Yeah. I remember I showed the owner of the record store this record and while like pitching our new project and he liked this album so much he bought it. And then I was pissed because it took me years to find my own copy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, keep an eye out for your own copy out there, listeners. And with that, let's close out another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles, and I'm happy if you guys are happy. (laughs) Aww. I appreciate that. My name is Sean Hartman, and we are going out on the track Get Well Soon, featuring Paul McCartney. This is Side B, track four. Um, The basic theme of this song is it's kind of the soundtrack to someone at the height of being sick and just feeling kind of delirious and goofy. And that is the vibe of this song. So decide if you think it was effective imagery or not. Thank you.
Radio Luxembourg 